At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Over the past decade, restaurant pop-ups have become a common launching pad for entrepreneurial chefs. The Atlanta pop-up from Chef Arnaldo Castillo, La Chingana, was so popular for its Peruvian food that longtime Atlanta restaurateur Howard Sue joined Chef Arnaldo to open a brick and mortar restaurant that specializes in Peruvian coastal cuisine. Later this hour, City Light senior producer Kim Drobe sits down with the owners of Tio Lucho. Plus, our series Speaking of Music today highlights keyboardist Mosiki Scales. First, New Year's resolutions can be daunting and discouraging if not achieved. So how do you make and keep a New Year's resolution that's not overwhelming? Matt Paxton joins me via Zoom. Matt is the host of the Emmy-nominated PBS series Legacy List, a show that helps families navigate the practical and emotional aspects of downsizing. The fourth season is out now on PBS. Matt Paxton, welcome back to City Lights. It is great to be here. Thanks for having me. We have spoken a couple times in the past two years, once about Legacy List and the other about your book, Keep the Memories, Lose the Stuff. You are known as the decluttering and cleaning expert. What led you to become a skilled professional in this field? Well, I jokingly say that I failed at everything else, but the tr- the truth is I was a 24-year-old kid and my dad, my stepdad, and both my grandfathers, they all passed away in one year and I was stuck cleaning up their houses. And my grandfather had said to me, if something uh, is, if you hate doing a job, you should do it for a job because it means other people will pay you to do it. And, and he was right. Here I am t- almost 25 years later, I'm still cleaning out people's houses from the lessons that I learned cleaning out their houses that first year. Now, you spent 15 seasons on the show 
hoarders as an expert cleaner. Matt, how did those experiences inform the way you view families who struggle with detaching from their belongings? So I started on the front lines, as you say. I mean, I was really in the trenches with, you know, the most extreme clutter situations in the world. I didn't know it at the time. So I think naivete was helpful. Um, I was a kid. I was just trying to make money and a lot of no one wanted to do those messy houses. And this was before TV. I mean, I was cleaning hoarded houses every day for five years before I got on TV. Um, but when you're when when your clients are at that low of a point, I mean, this is if you've never seen the show, it's extremely discouraging. It's a great show, don't get me wrong, but the people that are that what they're going through is really challenging and something bad has happened to them. And I think that was the first thing was I learned that for a hoarder, it, it's not choice. They don't choose to live this way. They don't choose to be filthy and gross, that something really bad in life has happened to them. And this is like the best they can make of their life. And so I, what I really tell people is that first 10 years, I just learned to be compassionate. And like, I mean, when you're in an extreme hoarding situation, compassion and humor are the two most important tools. Mm. And you, and you got to use them at the same time. <laughs> and, <laughs> And, and for a child, I, I, mean, I was a very immature 24, but what I, you know, it probably took me three years to realize, oh, these people are going through the same grief that I'm going through personally. And so most people see a hoarding situation and they judge that person and they put themselves above it. But I was very lucky to be in a point in my life where, man, I was, I was like thankful to have these people as friends because my life was kind of a mess too, just in other ways. And I think that compassion and that being broke as an entrepreneur and just having to kind of like be in the trenches every day. I mean, that's what really made me understand hoarding. And I later found out they're fascinating people, like brilliant, <laughs> really smart, usually much smarter than, than traditional people. They just, they have, their brains are so big that they don't have the same boundaries that you and I do. Like you and I have restraints, but for a hoarder, they're so intelligent and so ambitious in life that they don't have the constraints that you and I do. So, I mean, honestly, the, the, the older I get, the more fascinating I find hoarders. They're just brilliant, amazing people. They're just, their house is really messy. <laughs> so is that compassion you speak about, the compassion and a sense of humor, what enables you to talk to families in a way that's not condescending because you never come across as judgmental. But how do you stay honest and direct? I, well, I learned from, you know, I'm very lucky. A majority of my clients have been over 65 my, my entire life. Like no matter how old I was, my client was 65 or older. And there's a, there's a bit of confidence that comes with gray hair in age. Mm. And so my clients were brutally honest with me and that's what made me kind of deal in you know the currency of honesty it took me a while to get comfortable with it because i was so young but like when you hang out with enough 85 year old people well you know i mean when you hang out with a bunch of old people they 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 don't have time for for bs and so you get a lot of like just brutally honest answers and then that just becomes refreshing and actually quite enjoyable and so I was really lucky to cut my teeth at a very young age, I mean, under 30, and, and learn how to kind of maneuver life as an adult, but like with good knees, 
you know, like I was really, really lucky. And so, I mean, I, my clients are as much of the part. I mean, I remember one time I had a client that just told me to go home. She's like, Matt, you're a Matt. This was a hoarder who was going to lose her home. And she just goes, Matt, I'm really worried about you. You are a mess. You need to go home and come back tomorrow. And I thought it was like a joke. And she was being compassionate back to me. She knew I was tired and she knew I was really sad and I was having a hard time in life. I, I was missing my father, to be really blunt. Uh -huh. And she saw that. And so she reached out to me and gave me compassion. She gave me a hug. I'll never forget it. You know, my tip that day was a hug. Mm -hmm. And she said, just go home and we'll figure this out. You know? So what's your approach? What have you developed as a way of convincing people to let go of some sentimental items or collectibles and choosing a few things to keep. So it's all about listening. It's, and, and, and you of all people know how to tell a really good story, right? And that's really the number one tool for me. If you, if you lead with compassion and with humor, then it gives a space. You've earned some trust from my client. And that's whether it be a hoarder or I'm helping somebody move into senior living after they've been in their home for 50 years. I have to listen. I have to listen really intently. And I'm a talker, by the way. I mean, I, I love to talk and I'll talk all day long. It, but for my clients, I have to listen really for like a day. And, and it's all about just hearing the stories because the reason we hold on to items, this is super important. The reason we hold on to items is because of the people and the emotions attached to those items. You don't actually care about the plastic. You don't actually care about the wood. You care about the man or woman that created that, that crafted that, that gave that to you for a special reason. And it's all of those stories that make that item important and difficult to let go of. My method over the really the last 10 years has been to, to really give space for those stories. And, and I just listen. And, I'll, and I, will, I will ask people all the time now, hey, what is your legacy list? And of course, a legacy list is the name of my show, but what it really is is a list of the first five or six items in the house that mean the most to you. And they tell your family's story. They tell your family's journey. And so I make people prioritize that very early. And that's what I do on the first day now. I come in, I get to know them. I find out what their goals are. Like, what do you, what do you need this house? What, are you staying here? Are you moving? Are you making space for, for younger children? Like, what's the goal here? And then when we find that out, I start with the legacy list. And when I ask them to create that legacy list, it slows everything down. And then we talk and I just hear the stories and I'm like, great. Tell me about that jewelry. Tell me about that necklace. Tell me about that car. You know, and, and rarely are the items financially valuable. They're often emotionally valuable. And that's why I spend time on it because I want to hear the stories because I promise you at the end of the day, if you've told all the stories, um, you'll find it easier to let go of the items. And more importantly, you'll find out that people in your family actually want those items. Ah, now two of the episodes in this new season of Legacy List relate to tragic moments in 20th century history. First, would you talk about episode five, A Space for Healing? Yeah, this was by far the most special thing I've ever been a part of. And I've got seven kids. Mm. <laughs> and I have to tell you, we were in Birmingham, Alabama. And as many people know here in the South, there was a very significant 
event in 1963 at the 16th Street Baptist Church, and it's where four young girls, four young black women, uh, were murdered, and the bomb went off in the church, and one of the girls' names uh, was Denise McNair, and we were cleaning Denise McNair's parents' house, so the house that Denise lived in when she died, and we were, the family was just so open and so amazing, but they had you know, 50 years of real history in their home and they needed help going through it. And so we were really honored to be there. But when you're in a sacred space, you actually know it. And there's only a few times in life when you get that opportunity. And we knew we were in a sacred space and we had been challenged with finding some telegrams. We knew there were telegrams from like the Queen of England. We knew there were telegrams from Martin Luther King and his wife. And, and we knew there were some really important like Abernathy, we found uh, telegrams from Abernathy, all, basically all the streets here in Atlanta. We found telegrams from all these important people. And uh, we found underneath a hat box. This was in, so this would have been in Denise's mother's closet. We were going through all of her hats and all of her Sunday finest. And we found a plastic bag at the bottom of this closet. And we start to open it up and we, we see some dirty white gloves, almost as if they're covered in soot. And we realized they are. And we, we realized they were her mother's gloves. The day that Denise died, her mother went to church and started digging through the rubble to find her. And then wrapped in all of these gloves, we found a Bible with blood on it. And it said Denise in Crayola marker. We did, no one knew it was in the house. The family didn't know it was in the house. The mom, the day of the bombing, grabbed it, wrapped it up in her gloves, put it in her closet, and I found it 60-some years later. And I look at Avi, I look at my team, and we're like, this isn't, we shouldn't even have this. Like, this needs to be at the Smithsonian. You know, like, this is, because, I mean, soon after that, Dr. King comes to, that week, Dr. King comes to Birmingham then there's marches, then there's strikes. He gets, he gets arrested. He goes into, into jail and then writes letters from a Birmingham jail. I always say I find history, but to actually be looking at it was such just an amazing thing. And, and Avi, who is on my team, Avi is an African-American man. We went to high school together. We've known each other our entire lives. Avi has a daughter the same age as Denise McNair was when she died. And I look at Avi and he just, I mean, starts bawling. And it was such a special moment to be with your friend. I mean, I've known Avi since we were, gosh, 16 years old. And we're not 16 anymore, you know. And it was just really special and amazing. And then we didn't know if the family knew it was there or not. And so we had to wait until the end of the show, which was a whole nother day, <laughs> to present this to them. And they had no idea. They did not know it even existed. It was really an emotional moment to, to, to give this gift to the family. And honestly, as we sit on it, I think when people see this episode, they're going to realize it, it, it's really a gift for everyone. I mean, it was just this family was so strong and so powerful. And at every moment, trying to uh, use it to educate the world, not just, you know, not just fight. It was just a very powerful thing. And so it's been amazing for me as we continue to go on this show, like the opportunities we get to find things. And it's just, it's just been amazing and to, and to see what it means for everyone. But to me, to, to find pictures of Dr. I mean, we, this, oh yeah, her father was a, 
was the photographer for Jet Magazine. This was the craziest part. He was the photographer for Jet Magazine in the 60s, and we found all his negatives in the basement. And so we found, I mean, what, five weeks later, her fa- after Denise dies in the bombing, her father is there in jail the day Dr. King gets out, and we found all the negatives. I mean, it was just so special, and uh, not to, to let anyone, th- like, that's not, you don't need to have stuff of that caliber for us to come to your house, but but it was just so special and so un, you know, surprising. We didn't know any of that stuff existed in the house. And it was just really special in this, in this, the most powerful thing. And I'm only going to, I shouldn't tell the whole story here, but it's so good. This episode is amazing. We found a huge box of telegrams that were really amazing and loving and filled with just care and love. It was amazing. And then we found an entire binder filled with hate mail with basically hate telegrams that somebody had gone, you know, hundreds of people had sent to this family. I mean, think it was 1963. And on the cover of the book was a note by Mrs. McNair, and it just said, to forgive. Oh, this is extraordinary. Think about that, to forgive. And she was praying for all these people that were saying horrible things about her daughter she had just lost. And all she could think to do was to forgive them. I mean, I don't know that I would be so strong. I don't think I would. I just, I don't think I could, but this woman was. And uh, we were lucky to find the evidence of that. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with Matt Paxton, host of the PBS series Legacy List. Episode 6 is set in Atlanta, What was powerful about the program titled Attic Full of Memories? Well, this was one I'm, you know, I'm a new Atlanta resident, so I'm I'm going on year three. So it's kind of my new hometown. And I've gotten to do a lot of work with the JCC here in town. And um, I called down to the JCC and I said, hey, look, we really want to make sure we feature a Jewish family this year. We've never featured a, a, a Jewish family on the show. And we want to feature everybody. You know, it's just important to us. We just want to to feature because the more diverse you feature, the better the show is, you know. And she said, well, gosh, Rabbi Ellen is moving. You should call Rabbi Ellen. And I said, well, I don't know Rabbi Ellen. So she gets me on the <laughs> phone with Rabbi Ellen. And Rabbi Ellen, her job is to teach about the Holocaust. And her house is spotless, by the way. Just let me tell you. So it was kind of hard for us because I was like, I need a mess to clean up here. It's still it, it's still a TV <laughs> show about being messy. And this is a good Jewish mother, you know, and she's like, no, no. And so finally, her I got to talk to her husband and he was like, hey, man, our attic's pretty messy. So we go in there and, and it was. Thank goodness the kids had really junked up the, the attic. What we were able to found there was she was, and this is the kind of challenge I love, because we want to always find something new for our family members. We want to find something that helps to their add to their family story, because this is a show about legacy. It's not really about stuff. It's about the stories behind the stuff. And this was this lady's job. Her career is to teach about the Holocaust. So what am I going to teach her about her grandparents that she doesn't already know? And I went into it thinking, my gosh, I don't even know if we have a show. Like, there wasn't a lot of stuff. It wasn't that messy. And this lady has spent her career educating others about the Holocaust. 
Well, we end up, and I didn't know this story. There were a lot of, Dan you know, a lot of Danish that got taken to Sweden via boat. And every other, you know, every other country basically let, let the Germans know where their Jews were. But the Danes kept them hid, and then their fishermen took them to Sweden and hit them, and they never got caught. And, and it was a story I didn't know about. And Rabbi Ellen's mom would have been one years old when this happened. And her grandparents were smuggled on a fishing boat to Sweden. And we were able to actually reach out to this to the Swedish government. And they got us the paperwork of her grandmother and her mother arriving by boat that day. And we had documentation uh, and it's talking about her mom. I mean, like it was her grandmother's signature acknowledging her mom the day she got there. And it was a very, very uh, powerful piece of paper. One, because we just, she had never seen that and she's seen so much. And it was a story about, really about, you know, what would you do? And I asked her, because I, I ask every family member before we start the show, I said, hey, is there anything you, you know, what do you want the, the world to know? Like, if they, if they watch the show about you, how do you want them to feel when it's over? And, and not that we're trying to script the show, but I want to make sure that I'm able to set the family up to preach what they believe, you know, whatever that is. It's not my job to script it. It's my job to give them the space to tell their own family story. And she said, well, I want to know, you know, what would you do? Would you be like the Danes and risk it all to protect a stranger? Or would you be like everyone else? And it ended up being a very modern story decades later. You know, it was fascinating because it really does make you think, well, what would I do? I, I hope I would be like the Danes. I hope I would do the right thing. But you don't ever know until you're put in that situation. Now, let's get into how our listeners can make their own legacy lists. Would you tell us more, Matt? Yes, this is what I love. All right. Anyone can write it. All you have to have is a pen or a, you can even grab your cell phone and there's a little app in there that looks like a like an old radio recorder. It's the audio button. Click on the audio button. You can just talk into it. But I want you to really talk about and just brainstorm. Give me two or three. Start with one item. What's one item that really matters? You know, if, if the house was going to catch on fire, what would you want? What are the five items you'd want to take with you? If your house is on fire, what would you, what are you, what must you have? Um, I hope your partner is number one. <laughs> it's usually pets. It's usually pets. Partner's usually number two um, when I ask that question in the audience. But at the end of the day, there's a few items that really matter. And I want you to tell me why. That's it. And, and I think the advice I'll tell people is there's no perfect answer. It shouldn't be perfect. For some reason, over 55, we think we need to be perfect. Although we have the age behind us to know that nothing's perfect. But for some reason, when we're doing these things, we think it should be, you know, almost perfectly good. If it's perfect, it's probably not any good, honestly. Let it just fly. Like, say whatever, write whatever, write your true emotions and why you, why you like it and why you care about it. And what I've found is if you don't know where to start, believe it or not, just getting started. Like, ideas creates more ideas. And so if you just start telling, sharing your story, as long as you've hit record on that button, I promise you a good story will come out of it because it's inside of you. And none of us think, we all think that strangers are better storytellers than us. But remember, you're a stranger to everyone else. And so, I mean, honest, for me, like I tell people all the time, my kids are so done hearing my stories. They've heard them all. 
they know them all, <laughs> but they can finish them all, which that means I did my job. Uh, I mean, my kids could do the same interview with you today because they know all the stories about my grandparents. They know all the stories about, they even know stories about my great grandparents. And by the way, they never, they know stories about my dad and they never met my dad. And that's what I want. To me, that's a legacy list. And so I just encourage people to just get started. Like you, and, and just, just dump it, just dump it all out on paper or dump it all out to a person. I would encourage you just to tell a story to a, to a, anyone, anyone that's willing to listen and record it. I think that's even more important than writing because when we write, we try to make it perfect and it shouldn't be perfect. It should just be honest. And so start, start writing with one item, then maybe get to a second. And what you'll find is you'll get to eight or nine or 10. And I really only want you to have like five or six, but then you'll be able to prioritize it. We're in the month of January. What does a resolution reset entail? Okay. Resolutions are not my favorite thing in the world. And, and it, because to me, a resolution, you, you mean, a resolution is wonderful. But when you have to go buy a bunch of stuff to make it happen, that's where I get frustrated. Because again, I'm, I'm like, I want you to have less stuff, not more stuff. So I want you to look around the house right now. You got a resolution reset, which means I want you to get rid of the evidence of all the resolutions that you failed. <laughs> that includes workout machines. It includes exercise bikes. It includes pressure cookers. It includes bread makers. It includes all types of items in the kitchen and usually the family gym. And the reason I want you to get rid of it, go donate it or sell it, whichever you need to do. I, I prefer donation over sell, but if you need to sell it, sell it. One, getting, getting rid of the evidence helps you feel less guilty. And two, it sets the space for the real life that you want. And so it, it also, most importantly, it proves to you that you can do something, right? So many of us are just stuck. We, we want change, but we don't know how to change. And so when I say just go donate a few of those items, like, I mean, for me, it's always the treadmill. Like I find a treadmill in every house. It's usually really old. It's, it's been used maybe one time and someone spent a lot of money on it. And what's happening is people are hanging coats on it. That's really what it's become, a very expensive coat rack. And so I tell people all the time, let's donate that. Let's sell it. Let's get rid of it. And let's get rid of that space because it, it, I cannot stress this enough. It is a reminder that we failed last year. And so I want you to get rid of that and make the space for a new year. So believe it or not, to me, I love, I love breaking down old resolutions. That's one of my favorite ones to do this year. <laughs> Matt, I cling to something you told me the last time we spoke, which was to start off with baby steps and spend 10 minutes and then 30 minutes and maybe work up to an hour on a project, and I'd be surprised what I could get done. And you were right. So, so we spoke a year ago. So now, let me turn the tables. I'm interviewing you now. Where, where are you in your journey? Where, what have you gotten up to? If you started at 10 minutes, what have you achieved? I have achieved decluttering two of the largest junk drawers imaginable. And getting rid of, which means having donated, I don't know, maybe 12 or 13 cartons of books that we've read and no longer needed to keep in the house. So you went pretty deep if you got into books. Like, that's hard. 
books is really hard to get rid of. How does it feel to have those gone? I feel better knowing that other people can read them. Mm -hmm. My clinging to books is that I tend to think of them as friends. Oh, yeah. Books are just a timestamp of a place in our life. I always say they're trophies, really, for a point in our life. So when my dad, you'll love this story, when my dad passed away, my dad was like you. It was all about books, and he loved books. And I was very lucky with my father. He had a few weeks to live. He had about three weeks to live. He found out he had cancer. It was very aggressive. It wasn't fightable. It was just a, hey, man, you got three weeks. Wrap it up. And hindsight, it was that's the perfect way for my father to pass away. So we basically got to have a party. He got to say goodbye to everybody. And then the last week of his life, I would just go on his bookshelf and I would pull a book out and he would tell me about the book. And then he would tell me about the point in his life when he read it and like how that book helped him. Oh, That was the first time I ever realized, oh, books are more than just paper. Yes. Yes. Oh, your attitude is just astonishing. And it sounds like you got it from your dad. I got it from everybody. I got it from every man and woman that I've been helping for the last 25 years. I tell people all the time, I feel like I'm a superhero and I'm not saying I'm great, but I've gotten to take a little bit of each person. You know, I get to spend a week, two, sometimes three weeks with a family and I get to, tr and I get to hear all of their stories. Like I, I basically have like personal podcasts with every family in America and I get to learn as much as they're willing to share with me. And so, yeah, I take a little snippet from everybody. And when you get a little good from everybody, well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good to give back, you know? And so I, I am, I am very aware of how lucky and blessed I am to have this career. And so I always just love to, to come back with positive energy and say, Hey guys, like you can do it. Cause like, I remember, I mean, literally this is like new year's last year, you and I talked and you were beginning your journey. You had to start cleaning some stuff. Oh, I still have to, Matt. <laughs> Not proud but, of clinging to things the way I do. Well, I think you did it the way I suggest, which is don't try to do it all. It's not realistic for most of us. To knock it all out is just overwhelming, and it'll make us quit. And so say you won't, I mean, you did a lot more than I had expected, honestly. I mean, if you got into books, like, you definitely had some success. But for people listening right now that think, well, gosh, I can't do it. Well, you just proved that they can. You can do a drawer, <laughs> like a drawer. <laughs> That's it. If you, if it, guys, if you can, and I'll be back, I'll be back next year. I'd love to hear from listeners that got a drawer done this year. That is still success. Like we're a society of like, we beat ourselves up, you know, and, and we think we have to be the best at everything. This is not a race. This is just, Hey, let's get a little further down the road. Let's get a little bit accomplished. And so a lot of my, a lot of my tips this year has just been about helping people get started. That's it. I just want you to enjoy it. And my number one forever and ever is that 10 minute sweep. I want you to work for 10 minutes today. Can you do 10 minutes on something? And, and if you can, then it's not really about what you got done. It's that you got something done. That's what you need to be proud of. Indeed. And that is what's remarkable, to feel the sense of accomplishment at what seems like a very small task, but the very act of attacking what's before you is what's important. Tell us about the 4 p.m. project push. All right. This is kind of in line with what you and I have been talking about. I... If you're listening to this, then I want you to get something done today. 
If you look to your left and your right and you see a holiday tree or any lights, I would encourage you to start with that. I, mean, I always had a lady, I'll never forget, I had a hoarder. And uh, she goes, oh, that's my Easter tree. And I said, Easter tree? That's not a thing. She goes, sure it is. And I go, no, that's only for a thing for procrastinators. That's not a real thing. <laughs> and we laughed and laughed and laughed. And she goes, yeah, it is. I just didn't take the tree down. And the, the reality is... <laughs> You've got an opportunity today, especially if you've got a tree, take some ornaments down. If you've got some lights up or some holly up, something, just go get it. Like, and do it by, give yourself a deadline of 4 p.m. today. It literally can be a stack of 10 pieces of junk mail. It could be a corner of that junk mail. It could be anything. But pick a little spot. I don't, I really don't care how big it is. I mean, it needs to be, I don't know, as big as your, as your cell phone. That's the space I want you to clear up, all right? As big as your cell phone. If you can clear that space today, then it's a win. You need to look at it that way. You need to look at it as a win. You have accomplished something and you should be proud of yourself. And I want you to feel that joy that we all feel when we accomplish something. Matt Paxton, host of the PBS series Legacy List. The fourth season airs on WABE-TV Sundays at noon. And more information is on our website, wabe.org slash city lights. In a moment, we'll hear the story of a Peruvian pop-up made permanent. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. This is City Lights on W-A-B-E. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. Over the past decade, restaurant pop-ups have become a common launching pad for entrepreneurial chefs. In the summer of 2021, City Light senior producer Kim Drobes profiled La Chingana, a popular Peruvian pop-up from Chef Arnaldo Castillo. The success of La Chingana caught the eye of longtime Atlanta restaurateur Howard Sue, best known for Sweet Auburn Barbecue and Lazy Betty. Together, they made Castillo's dream of owning a brick-and-mortar restaurant reality and opened Tio Lucho's on North Highland Avenue. The new restaurant is named after Castillo's father, 
and specializes in Peruvian coastal cuisine. Last week, Kim joined Castillo and Sue at the new space to share the story of this pop-up made permanent. This is the first thing that I like people to see, which is the, uh, the mural, which in Spanish says, in Atlanta se come rico, and the translation is, in Atlanta you eat good. That's Chef Arnaldo Castillo, and he's walking me around Tio Lucho's. He went on to explain that the mural that we're looking at is made with Chicho-style colors. Chicho-style in, in terms of design, um, cumbia groups in the like 70s in Peru started using these very colorful and bright flyers to market their shows and stuff like that. And then it became like the sort of like iconic way of using these colors and the writing and style. So I thought it'd be really neat to just kind of grab that aspect of Peruvian art. Um, the artist is Franco Bejarano and I love it, you know. The restaurant has a subtle seaside vibe from the aqua wave tiles to the chairs woven with nautical rope. But there's also a few special touches like the stone partition wall that nods to a variety of Latin American cultures. The design is made out of stone and it's just, um, what's a good way to describe it, just squares. And it's a very rustic design. It's typical to Latin America, meaning when I saw this, I instantly thought about my godmother's beach house in Buda. Uh, my sous chef is from Mexico, from um, Jalisco. And when he came in, he was like, oh, man, that reminds me of Jalisco, right? And then uh, a friend came from, who's from Brazil, also saw that and was like, oh, that reminds me of, you know? And so it was really cool that just this type of design just brought back memories from people, you know? We paused by the kitchen service window where Castillo's old pop-up food cart now serves as an expo table. This is our La Chingana little street cart where I was making sandwiches outside of a chop shop in Etchwood. So it's just a little little nod to the pop-up and how far we've come. So it's become our, our expo table. So um, typically I'll stand here and just finish dishes as, before they head to the table. And the artwork was done by my wife. Super multi-talented. All the plants are done by her. And if you can believe, like, I think over 50% of these plants came from my house. Picture my house, <laughs> right? So it all, it all just ties the space together, right? Castillo and I walked over to the bar area where we were then joined by Tio Lucho's other half, restaurateur Howard Sue. My background, um, you know, I grew up here in uh, Metro Atlanta. My, my parents were restaurateurs. My, my brother is a classically trained chef. Uh, I partner with him with, over at Lazy Betty. Uh, my sister is also my partner. So we're, we're kind of, you know, family restaurant people. So um, I currently am very involved with Sweet Auburn Barbecue and, and Tio Lucho's uh, right now. Sue went on to explain why he wanted to partner with Castillo for Tio Lucho's. Oh, I love the food. I, I actually have probably been exposed to Peruvian food, but not in an impactful way. But last year, I, my wife and I, with our little six-month-old baby, went to Miami and didn't leave our hotel block. So we went to this one Peruvian restaurant every day. And what drew me to it was not just the, the delicious cuisine and flavors, but it was very Asian uh, inspired. And so I quickly had to Google what's going, what's up with Peru and Asian culture. And it was very Asian influence. They have a huge Asian population. So that really attracted me to it. I was like Latin and Asian. Okay, that's freaking awesome. 
And so came back to Atlanta and was like, Googled Peruvian food, where can I go get some? And first thing that came up was uh, La Chingana's pop-up, and it was right down the street from my house. I went to go eat it and loved it and was just like, man, this is great. And after maybe a couple visits, started talking to Arnaldo, and the guy was looking to do a restaurant, and I was like, man, he seems like a cool guy, so let's talk. (laughs) And after they started talking, things moved pretty quickly. It felt fast. I mean, when I started the pop-up, I remember talking to Julie, my wife, and being like, man, I I gave myself a time limit because I knew that this was going to be a very demanding mission, you know, that I put on myself of of trying to open up a restaurant. So to do it all in a little under two years, I I thought, man, that was a lot of hard work that we put in, you know, I mean, it feels great. Um, I'm able to cater the business to the idea that I have of how I want to present Peruvian food here in Atlanta. You know, we do authentic Peruvian food, but it's not in the traditional sense. So as an example, a lot of the Peruvian community loves what we do here because not only are we presenting those flavors that everybody knows, but we're also using, utilizing ingredients that are local to the region um, and really just put Peru on the map here in Atlanta. Tio Lucho's co-owners, Chef Arnaldo Castillo, and restaurateur Howard Sue, speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes. More information about Tio Luchos is on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. Coming up, our series Speaking of Music today highlights Mosiki Scales. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of Music where we get to hear from Atlanta musicians in their own words. Hi, my name is Masiki Scales. I'm a musician, professor, and founder of the band Masiki Scales and the Common Ground Collective. I've been a part of the Atlanta indie music scene for over two decades. Through our music, teaching, and performances, we explore the thread that links the music of Africa and the African diaspora. We connect the dots between Afrobeat, funk, hip-hop, soul, and jazz. My primary instrument is the electric piano. I compose, arrange, sing, and play African percussion instruments such as the dun-dun drum and the agogo bell. I've been playing piano since I was eight years old in Gary, Indiana, and grew up listening to music like Earth, Wind, and Fire, Gil Scott Heron, The Emotions, Stanley Clark, and local Chicago radio. One day I heard Parliament Funkadelic's flashlight playing on the boombox and started playing along on the family piano. I never got it out of my system. Bum, 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 bum. What a funky bass line. I took piano lessons from Miss Annette Walker. From middle school through college, I performed in several bands prior to founding Masiki Scales and the Common Ground Collective. I am extremely grateful to create music that is healing and touches the heart and soul of the community.
I graduated from Tuskegee University in Alabama. Upon graduating, I crossed the border and I attended Clark Atlanta University for graduate school. The rich scholarly and musical traditions of HBCUs provided fertile soil as I created my musical family. I've taught history and African-American studies at Morehouse College, Georgia State University, Clark Atlanta University, and Morris Brown College. The HBCU experience is alive and well in the ATL. Witnessing excellence in these spaces has remained an inspiration. Planting roots here has connected me with my lifelong musical family. As time goes on, that family continues to deepen and expand. by the resilience of black music. From the early spirituals, the blues, ragtime, funk, soul, Afrobeat, and hip hop, I've come to appreciate the role this music plays in the African diaspora. I've developed a deep regard for the artistry that has shaped these sounds, highlighted by improvisation, timeline patterns, AAVE, often done with an aesthetic of cool. The testimony of these songs indicate that my ancestors were able to create music that served as a wellspring, a lifeline to edify them during periods of insecurity and doubt. I choose to celebrate this resilience in my compositions. I'm honored to play a role and continue the legacy of these tough-minded people who took the traditions of their ancestors and used them to resist and to carve out a space for their humanity. checking out live music performances at Venkman's, St. James Live, the Atlanta Arts Exchange, the Rialto Center for the Arts, Variety Playhouse, JB's Record Lounge, and Kebby Williams Gallery 992. I have also thoroughly enjoyed the music during the Atlanta Jazz Festival and the National Black Arts Festival. Summer Solstice was born at a jam session at a vegan restaurant in East Point called Loving It Live. I started experimenting and exploring this melody, and it wouldn't leave me alone. It was on repeat in my head all day. It earned the name Summer Solstice because it reminded me of a pleasant, warm summer day. Developing this melody and working with the brilliant jazz guitarist Tavius Elder were highlights of creating this tune. I consider Summer Solstice a riding song, a road trip song. My latest CD release is entitled West West Africa. 
It is a diasporan creation story told through music. This album is an ode to my West African ancestors and their creative legacy. The single Kaleidoscopic Universe has achieved worldwide acclaim and is a featured track on Spotify's Jazz Funk playlist. The Traveler, featuring Russell Gunn, and Ebo Proverb are singles that will be released and we will present our yearly concert and parade on the Atlanta Beltline, No Tables, No Chairs, on June 3rd. Masiki Scales and our series Speaking of Music. More information about Scales as well as the entire Speaking of series is on our website, wabe.org slash speakingof. The Atlanta-based company Stabe Dance is trying to demystify abstract contemporary dance with their upcoming performance, Ararat, The Beginning. The first look is designed to allow participants in roads to explore contemporary dance through performance, prompts, workshops, and more. The dance work Ararat has its roots in the aftermath of the Armenian genocide, yet speaks to the resiliency of the human spirit. Through the multidisciplinary experience, the viewer is invited to ponder their own life as it relates to new beginnings, adapting, shifting, and evolving. Artistic director and choreographer George Stabe gives us a glimpse of what participants can expect when viewing this thematic meditation. I can safely say that they should expect to feel somewhat overstimulated, and this is intentional. We are offering many points of entry to the analysis of new beginnings. Therefore, situations will manifest and present themselves, and hopefully one or several will align with an audience member's personal experience, inviting them to ponder on their own the challenge of starting over, and also celebrating their own sense of resilience. And Sarah Hilmer, Stabe Dance Managing Director, tells us why she believes the event is inspirational. I would say the whole week we have lined up for Era at the beginning, from the workshops to the conversations to the post-show discussions to the performances themselves, are inspirational because no matter how little or much you experience, you're going to be given a chance to really sit with something and experience something fully and deeply and be able to relate in a personal human level through whatever you're going through in life. And it's, I think, a special experience to have, especially now in this super fast-paced world we live in. Ararat, the beginning, opens January 26th and runs through January 28th at the Schwartz Center for the Performing Arts. More information is available at stabedance.com.
I invite you to join me Wednesday for a special event at the Temple on Peachtree Street. I'll moderate a panel of distinguished guests discussing Ken Burns' PBS series, The United States and the Holocaust. That's Wednesday, beginning at 6 p.m. at the Temple, 1589 Peachtree Street, Northeast. Admission is free. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., the co-curators of New Worlds, Georgia Women to Watch, detail their new exhibition, which opens at Atlantic Contemporary this Friday. If you missed part of today's show, like my earlier conversation with the host of Legacy List, Matt Paxton, you could catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. There you'll find a complete archive of our stories so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at wabe.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E.